Rejected and alone like a rose 
Adam he Father God, we want to praise you for who you are and who you've made us to you. I pray that you would bless this time together. I pray that we would focus on you, that we would not focus on opinions, that we would not focus on politics, that we would not focus on the things that drive us apart for no good reason. I pray that we would focus on you and that your kingdom is not of this world and anything we do outside of your kingdom is nothingness. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I know I'm going to get hot up here, so I don't know about all of you. <clears throat> Last Sunday, as I recounted all of the things that we've missed as a congregation uh, during this shutdown of or restriction on public worship one of the things i mentioned was pentecost sunday which in the for the past uh, i think four years has been our congregational covenant signing sunday um, that would have been the first sunday of this month the first sunday of june and while we can't turn back the calendar to pentecost sunday um, I, I really would like for us to plan for um, a renewal and a refreshing of our covenant together for the year 20, years 2021 to carry us through the second half of, of this strange year and on into whatever the future um, holds for us. So um, in that regard, I'd like to, as, as hard as it's going to be to do that with everybody with us still scattered to a large extent, um, I want to make a new 2020 poster of our Congregational Covenant available and um, begin that signing process next Sunday as we think about that. And as I was thinking about that, I, I pondered, it, it led me to you know, deeper into pondering some things that have been on my mind in response to everything that we're experiencing, I pondered the question of who who, and what we really are to one another as a covenant fellowship. What, um, what is the significance of this covenant? What does it mean to us? What does it mean for us? What or who binds us together in covenant with one another and with God. In, in short, yeah, the title for my message, who, who are we? When I stepped into the pulpit at Sunnyside Mennonite Church 24 years ago this month, um, 
that was my first extended experience at congregational leadership and in in particular in preaching every sunday and my first sermon and i still have my notes in a little notebook um my ser first sermon was entitled who is god and the second sunday my sermon was who are we uh, even back then my my focus that i that i felt at the time was leading a congregation to consider who they were to and with one another and how they conceptualized or saw their relationship with god that congregation had struggled with that for a long time um, I found myself in the 18 months that I was with those folks, I found myself dealing with interpersonal things that went back 30 to 40 years into the 1950s, into the early 1950s, so 45 years. And in a sense, they, um, they struggled with that at that time, and in a sense, I think that struggle is still is still in existence um, within a couple years within just a couple of years of the end of my interim pastorate there um, that congregation came apart at the seams and people went their their various ways i i guess i could look at that and say i wasn't very successful in in pulling them together to some kind of a shared perspective of who they were in their relationship with each other and in their relationship with God. But it's very much the same question that I bring to us today, that I, that I wrestle with, and that I'd like us to think about as we think about being a covenant fellowship and signing a covenant together and keeping it fresh and keeping it new from year to year. From the very earliest days of calling forth a people through Abraham and his descendants, God has had issues with their identity and their relationship with him. Or maybe I should say the people have had issues <laughs> with their identity and with their relationship with God. But clearly it was an issue for God as well, an issue in relationship with his people. So that we read repeatedly over and over again throughout the story of the Exodus and the wilderness experience, we read over and over again about the people's grumbling, their complaining, their resistance to, to Moses and, and to his leadership and to God's leadership, their disobedience, and at times, outright rebellion. Um, what God had to deal with, what Moses had to deal with. And the book of Judges covers an approximately 400-year period of time. And if I remember right, <clears throat> at least six cycles of rebellion or disobedience and rebellion that leads to bondage, that would lead around to desperation and a cry of repentance, which would lead to God saving them and renewing them and sending a judge to to rescue them, 
and then right back into disobedience and rebellion, leading to bondage, leading to desperation, and leading to rescue. 400 years, six cycles of that. You read it in the book of Judges. It, that's a brutal, brutal book in the Old Testament, filled with violence of, um, you know, people, people groups, different people groups that would subjugate the children of Israel, and then God would rescue them. And then by the end of the book, it had deteriorated to the point where they were attacking each other. And, and they nearly obliterated the tribe of Benjamin because of a conflict internally, an internal conflict. These were people who struggled, who absolutely just couldn't get who they were supposed to be in relationship with God. They just couldn't get it. And in many ways, that had never changed. That period of the judges came to an end. We come into First and Second Samuel and the people clamoring for the king. And finally, God saying to Samuel, okay, okay, give him a king. They won't respect me as a leader. Let's, let's give him a king. But, but the cycle never ended. You know, that, that kind of thing never changed never changed and it came to a head in particular the end of the northern kingdom of Israel back up a little bit a king wasn't the solution because under King Saul the first king they did very well for a period of time but then you know his leadership his mental health came apart at the seams King David, under King David, under King Solomon, there was a period of stability, but then things really went haywire and the kingdom divided. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and, and still, just like judges, conflict with surrounding nations and conflict with each other, going to war against each other. And that, as I say, came to a head by the end of the northern kingdom, closing days of the northern kingdom of the prophet Hosea. So let's read Hosea, the first chapter, chapter one of Hosea. Um, his, uh, his, the opening of his prophecy declared against the northern kingdom, the children of Israel. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and the reigns of Jeroboam, son of Jehoaz, the king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and take yourself a wife, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because this land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to her, Call her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen, 
but by the Lord their God. And after she had weaned lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be that day of Jezreel. That's the first chapter of Hosea. And note the significance of the names. You know, you've heard me go on about this before. Names in the Bible are significant. They mean something. If you look at the meaning of the names, oftentimes it adds so much to the story. But look at the significance of the names. One of the, one of the evils of the northern kingdom, the house of Jehu, uh, had been a massacre of innocents at Jezreel. So he says, name your first son Jezreel because I'm going to punish them for that. And then when her daughter was, when his daughter was born, name her Luruchamach, which means no love. No love. Because I'm not going to show love to them anymore. And then his last son was born, specifically the last son is born, and saying, name him Lo-Ami, which means you are not my people. You are not my people, and I am not your God. How were they not his people? How could that be? He had, he had made a promise to Abraham. You know, your descendants, your descendants will be my special people through whom the whole world will be blessed. And they were descendants of Abraham. How could they not be his people? What had happened? What had happened that would lead him to the point of saying to them, you are not my people and I am not your God? Let's check out what happened, reading in Jeremiah some words that were actually written to the southern kingdom about 75 to 100 years after Hosea. Jeremiah has this to say in Jeremiah chapter 7 to the southern kingdom of Judah. In Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 21, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, did I not, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but you did not listen to me or pay attention to me. You were stiff-necked, did more evil than your forefathers. <clears throat> so as I say, those words written some 100 years, 75 to 100 years after Hosea, yet they have the same powerful message with a little bit more background. 
He says to Hosea, name your child Lo-Ami. You are not my people. I am not your God. He doesn't really tell us why. Doesn't really go into the detail of why, but Jeremiah does. Jeremiah adds that in. Because I gave you this command. Obey me. Obey my voice. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. But <clears throat> they didn't listen. They didn't listen. So that, that powerful message. And last Sunday I concluded my message about how important it was that the, that the child, Jesus, learned obedience at the feet of his earthly parents. And that, and that learned obedience carried right on through into his obedience to the calling on his life and the will of God for his life led, led right on through the obedience that he, to his parents to the obedience, as Paul says, to death, even death on a cross. And we sang together during our hymn time last Sunday, at the opening of our hymn time last Sunday, we sang together these words from Jeremiah, word for word. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people and walk in all the ways I've commanded you that it may go well with you and I will be your God. So Jeremiah makes clear that that's the issue. That is the issue. That's the defining issue. Helping to define who the Lord identifies as his people. The, the, the defining element is obedience to his word and to his will but obedience to what obedience to what to written a written law to written words obedience to a system of rituals and offerings and sacrifices the lord says through jeremiah Go right on ahead with your worship. Go right on ahead with your, add, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. The sarcasm there is just absolutely thick. You can cut it with a knife. Go ahead. Do your worship thing. Spend it all on you. Eat the meat yourself. It's all about you. So is it to a written law? Is it to a system of rituals, offerings, and sacrifices? Is, it to, is, is obedience to a proper theology, a pro proper way of studying and knowing God, figuring out who God is and putting him in a nice little package and with nice little definitions so we can say, well, this is what God is like. Is it acceptable doctrines? Is it obedience to acceptable doctrines, to traditional dogmas? This is what we believe, this is how we believe, this is, this is how we live it. To traditions in general, what are we to be obedient to? What is the obedience? To what is the Lord asking us to be obedient that we might be called his people? That it might, be, it might define who we are? As, as you ponder that, let me be forceful in saying that our situation is really very little different than that of God's people in the days of Hosea or Jeremiah or Jesus or Paul 
or Luther or Menno. Our situation is really not a whole lot different. We look to define ourselves, Christians look to define ourselves by many of those same external things that I just mentioned. Written laws, ritual worship, acceptable ways of doing things, accepted theology, traditions and traditional dogma. We look at those kind of things and we define ourselves by those kinds of external things so that we look at those things and if, you're, if you agree with me, you're in. If you don't, you're out. And that's why that, you know, we define our peoplehood in that way. And while we're putting our energy into that, here is God literally aching for us to, in the words of the Apostle Paul, offer ourselves our very selves, our whole selves as living sacrifices, set apart, pleasing to God in true worship. No longer conformed to the world, but having minds that are transformed by the renewing of his Holy Spirit. And then we will be able to know his will in its completeness. That may sound familiar, that's Romans 12, 1 and 2, my, my paraphrase. Then we'll be able to know his will. And how important is that? How important is knowing his will? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, toward the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, Jesus goes on to say that many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we heal the sick? Many will come to him calling him Lord and recounting all of the wonderful things they did in his name. And you know what he's going to say to them? These are Jesus' words, not mine. And I will say to them, get away from me, you evildoers. I don't know who you are. I don't even know you. Go away from me. These are people who call Jesus Lord. And Jesus himself says, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's how important it is for us to, be, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices Set apart, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can know God's will. It's the only way we can know God's will. And only by knowing God's will can we enter the kingdom of heaven. Would Jesus recognize me 
as someone who lives the will of God? That's a question for every single one of us. Would Jesus recognize me as someone who first and foremost lives the will of God? Over and over and over again throughout his very troubling and difficult relationship with his people, the Lord has acted over and over again to redeem, to restore, to renew, to save. You heard it even as in Hosea 1, even in that very strident passage where he says, name that child lo ami because you are not my people and I am not your God. Even in that chapter, he ends it by saying, yet at that time, yet the time will come where in the place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Because God acts over and over and over again to renew, to restore, to save. At least 12 times in the prophecy of Jeremiah and the prophecy of Ezekiel, at least 12 times we read the words, you, they, or you, one or the other, you will be my people and I will be your God. Sometimes it's flipped. Sometimes it says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and quotes exactly from Jeremiah 33. I think it's, uh, Jer no, Jeremiah 31, beginning of verse 31. The writer of Hebrews picks up exactly and quotes on that. For there, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and turned away from them. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sin no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. What did God do in the face of the unfaithfulness, the continuing cycles of unfaithfulness of people not doing his will? not seeking to know his will, not seeking to really know him, be in relationship with him. The writer of Hebrews says he found fault with the people for they did not remain faithful. But what he does is he makes a new covenant. And he says it's written on their hearts and in their minds. It's not on paper. It's written on their hearts and in their minds. And he says he makes the old written covenant obsolete. And then note, note very carefully this powerful and sobering reality. 
that which is obsolete and aging, again, these are not my words, these are the words of Hebrews, that which is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Is your commitment to the Lord old and obsolete? Your personal commitment to the Lord, does it go back? Is it based on some commitment that you made as a teenager, perhaps? When you prayed a certain prayer? In all of the acceptable language to us, when you ask Jesus into your heart, is it based on something, an event that happened some time ago? Is it based on, on the external elements that I mentioned a while ago, on written laws, on understanding the scriptures properly, on rituals, on practices, on the old and the normal ways of doing things, having the proper theologies and beliefs and acceptable doctrines, traditions, this is how we've always done it. This is how my parents did it. This is how my grandparents did it. This is just how it is. Is that the basis of your commitment and your covenant with God? If it is, then like everything in life, it is aging. The sun rises, the sun sets. And every day is another day distance between where you are today and that decision that you made whenever it was made. In my case, it goes back to the age of 16. And if I, if I just go back to that age of 16, which was an absolute profound turning point moment in my life, significant, and I can't deny that, but if, I, if that's all it was, then it's aging and the circumstances of my life today might make it somewhat obsolete. And that, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, that which is aging and obsolete is soon to disappear. The covenant that God desires with me and with you is a covenant that is renewed every single morning. It's not based on history. It's not based on a decision that you made sometime. Can't count on that. You can't just say, well, I asked Jesus in my heart. I said, Lord, Lord. Jesus himself said, you can't count on that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have made it. We, in the way that we talk about things, sometimes I think we, it's dangerous. Because we tell people, all you have to do is, you know, Believe in Jesus and say Jesus. And here's Jesus himself saying, no, it's not all you have to do. In fact, if that's all you do, you don't enter the kingdom. What you have to do is the will of my Father. And the will of God is that he have a relationship with us that is new every day. That's what the Old Testament tells us. That's what the psalmist tells us. That's what... Jeremiah in the book of Lamentation tells us his mercies are new every morning. New every morning. And I need to acknowledge that every morning. The commitment, the covenant that I have with God, the commitment that I have with Jesus Christ has to be refreshed every single day. When I wake up, the determination is today. 
Today, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Today, I'm going to do my best to understand the will of God for, for me today, now. Not yesterday, not years ago, not when I was 16. And I need to let that define who I am in relationship to him. And we need to let that define who we are in relationship to each other. What does it mean for us to be a covenant people? And there's my title for next Sunday. A covenant people. Covenant, a covenant together to do what? To be what? Let's think about that. In short, who are we? Who are we? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the challenges of your word are quite sobering. When we look into your history with your people, and in many ways for us it's like looking into a mirror, seeing ourselves, seeing the cycles in our own lives of times when we're close to you and in times when we draw away, seeing those episodes and those times and those issues in our own lives where our attitude is, we don't need you, Lord. We can handle this on our own. We've got this figured out. And yet we have this sobering challenge, the reality of Jesus' words, that our entering your kingdom and our living in your presence is not based upon anything fixed or written or established or understood, but it's based on a living relationship with you and doing your will. So I would pray that you help us to understand what that will is. I pray that you would give us a willingness to offer ourselves to you each morning, every day, as a living sacrifice, to commit ourselves every day to seeking you and not conforming to the world, to walking every day in step with your Holy Spirit, allowing the Spirit to transform us and the fruit of the Spirit to grow within us so that in every relationship, in every interaction, we can be that transformed people. Those who, in the words of Hosea, in that place will be called sons and daughters of the living God, children of the living God. See our hearts this morning and every morning. Look into the inner places of our minds and hearts and call us forth to that kind of obedience which defines us and helps us define ourselves as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name, for we know that it is only by his power that this can be real for us. Amen. That brings us to our time of announcements. Does anyone have any announcements this morning? Excellent. 7.45, youth will have a cookout. Um, if you look on the other side of the bulletin, we're under the uh, section Pray Without Ceasing, it has 
Oh, actually above that, sorry, the general announcements and messages. Willis and Nancy's uh, cell phone numbers are in there. They no longer have a landline. And I'm probably gonna get with Marcia uh, this week because um, I think we're getting rid of our landline as well. So I'll try to get my cell phone number out there. But I realized, actually Amber and I realized that we're paying, what, $30 a month to uh, talk to someone about our extended warranty on a vehicle. <laughs> and it's really not worth it to us anymore, so. So we'll be doing a cell phone thing as well. Uh, but more about that later. But Willis and Nancy's uh, new numbers are there. And also Ron uh, has the, I talked to Ron. I know there's more than just Ron involved in the co uh, gospel concert. Uh, that's uh, in the works to be on July 25th. Are there any other announcements? Nine thirty. I assume that's a.m. Okay. Those sewing circles can be kind of wild, from what I hear. So, thought I'd ask. Are there any other announcements? Yes. Excellent. All right. In case you weren't able to hear that, we're doing coins for cans. The cans will be by the baskets. So bring in all three months worth of coins and the crocs for coins, giant crocs for coins, oil drums for for cans, um, something like that. That wasn't quite right. If there's no other announcements, though, um, that leads us to our time of prayer requests, which if you haven't heard yet, uh, Don Ash is in the hospital at uh, Meadville. He's in Meadville Medical Center. He was having